If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Will Erskine booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, seasons, greetings, Happy Holidays, and oh yeah, Happy New Year to everyone. Here's Scott Thompson. All right. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. This is the last show of 2023. And it's kind of been one of those years. Remember we said that coming out of COVID. We said coming out of COVID, you know, this is, you know, things are going to, remember the roaring 20s coming out of COVID. And I guess it was for about a day and a half. And then, you know, everybody's, remember the pots and pans and all that sort of stuff? And then everybody started getting angry with each other. So maybe we could start this new year off on a different foot. And, uh, and, and, you know, as I'm reading, as I normally do, and Tom, you can attest to this, you know, the list of the grocery list of the topics we're going to talk about or, um, or, you know, the, the, the political issues of the day. It's like, gee, that's depressing. No, I don't want to do that one. No, I don't like that one either. So we're not going to do any of that today. But, however, we will have a, a nice range of guests on that will come and talk about their, uh, what, you know, whatever their expertise is and the top stories of the day. But, uh, yeah, we'll try to keep the doom and gloom out of it as uh, we uh, we finish the last show of 2023. And then... I promise in January 2nd or 3rd, are we back? Uh, I, you know, we'll start to start, we'll uh, hopefully start 2024 off on, uh, on a great foot. All right. This is interesting. Uh, CTV News is reporting that major Canadian payment processing firm Moneris, uh, that they're responsible for the, you know, when you, you tap your card and all that stuff for widely used debit and credit machines, uh, across the country experiencing quote service degradation. Way to go, you guys. You're like breaking the Internet. You're blowing it up. That's what you're doing. You're blowing up the Internet. What's going on here? Calm down. Put it back in your pocket or your purse. Yeah, so uh, this is, <laughs> and it's only Friday. Wait till Super Saturday. Oh, my God. What's going to happen? Super Saturday's canceled. It's canceled. <laughs> We've canceled it, folks. No Super Saturday. It's done. Everything's still smoking from Friday, from Fun Friday. What happened? All right. A major Canadian payment processing firm, Moneris, responsible for widely used credit and debit machines, experiencing some service degradation. So, you know what? I'm guessing just a lot of people pounding away at it at once. Uh, so, you know, just take your time and, um, and, and a deep breath. Quote, we are currently experiencing service degradation that may result in intermittent processing issues. The company wrote this afternoon, our Tim, our team with Tim's, uh, is actively investigating this matter with the utmost urgency to swiftly restore normal service levels. The company did not specify which services might be impacted, but apologize for any inconvenience the issues may cause. So there you go. Uh, things might be just a little slower um, today. And you thought they were checking your account. No, the whole thing's... Uh, and that reminds me, we got a, a, an email from a listener, I think it was Frank earlier on today, who said that he was out at Costco. And we were looking for, you know, Christmas songs on this All Request Friday. Uh, and he requested a song, and he he was saying that, uh, I guess, in and around any of the stores, it's kind of a mess. 
So uh, he was making reference to people who were lining up trying to get in parking spots. And then the language they were using when perhaps five people showed up for the same spot. It's kind of like the housing crisis, except it's a parking spot. It's all about real estate, you know. So anyway, uh, so that's another thing to keep in mind. It is, I was out earlier this morning and it is, it was busy then. So, so just be aware that, uh, you know, it is the, there's the weekend before Christmas. So this weekend is just going to be unbelievable. People are going to be out and about and doing the thing because they've got a couple of days off before the holidays. So, uh, just be aware of that. So whether it's, you know, payment problems, your visa not making it all the way through your debit card, what have you, or even, you know, picking a, uh, a parking spot in the mall or wherever you happen to be. Uh, let's not forget to be civil about it all. Let's hold the door open for other people. Maybe that's a good idea too. And let's not forget the Sally Ann uh, that are usually manning kettles in and around all of those high traffic areas as well and help them out if you can. And again, thank you to everybody who helped us with the 900 CHML Children's Fund. It continues 12 months of the year. All the details on how you can continue to help us help the kids at 900CHML.com. We would greatly appreciate anything you can do. But yeah, we're heading into the Christmas weekend, so uh, let's try to put... Uh, what has happened uh, behind us, whether it's, uh, remember a couple of years ago, it was the pandemic. Now it's sort of uh, affordability and just tough times. So new start, new uh, new year coming up. So uh, let's get it off on a good start. All right. So let's move on to the year that uh, the year that was or look back to the year that was from Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. What stands out for you? And, and, and whether it's politics, pop culture, whether it's music, whether it's TV, whatever, um, what, what stands out to you as as you look back at this year. How will you, because really in the last couple of years, it's been traumatic for a lot, everybody. It's been a, a global pandemic. How does this year stand out for you, though? So I'm going to concentrate on pop culture moments, Scott, because I think we could all use a little light and levity about right about this time. So when I look at the top pop culture moments, the first thing I think of is the power of women. And let's look at Taylor Swift. And with the Eras tour, and let's look at Beyonce with the Renaissance tour. Both of them smashed unbelievably unbelievable records. You know, when Taylor Swift rolls into town, that place, uh, that city or town's GDP goes up by about five yeah. percent, and that is power. So I would have to say that everything, especially Taylor Swift and her romance with uh, Travis Kelsey, I would have to say is one of the top pop culture moments, which is the gift that absolutely keeps on giving. Um, one of the other things that I think sort of like rocked everybody and, and, and you and I talked about it was, and remember, these are lighthearted topics. So Barbenheimer, you yeah, and I actually yeah, talked about Barbenheimer. Yeah, Barbie came out and Oppenheimer yeah. came out. That was yeah. sort of the, yeah. let's all go back to the movie theater. People like people have not been going back to the movie theater in the way that I think a lot of people thought they would post pandemic, but these two movies sort of reignited our love with the big screen and, you know, that whole thing about trying to do it all at once, watching Barbie and then Oppenheimer, which was basically a five-hour extravaganza with or without bathroom breaks. So I think that that was also something else that, you know, when I look at pop culture, Scott, I look at things and trends that everybody can get behind, not just particular groups, but everybody, no matter where you come from, what demographic, what socioeconomic background you are, you can have a commonality in talking about them. So I think that those are just two of the things that come to mind. And then, of course, what would it be, Scott, if I didn't mention the royal family? Because, <laughs> as you know, 
you love to tease me about that I am a royal watcher. And I am. And I am, unabashedly. So this was about the tell-all about the royal family, how much is too much and how much is not enough. I'm almost finished watching The Crown, and a lot of people aren't. Apparently, it's the last season. Prince and everybody's Harry, talking about that. I mean, you know, I was on a plane recently, and I'm looking across at everybody's seat, and they've all got it on. <laughs> did you think of me, Scott? <laughs> I did. <laughs> but and yeah, let's not it's, forget it's, Harry's it's, tell-all book, The yeah. Spare. That was certainly big, big news and vaulted to the number one position and everybody bought it. I'm not sure everybody read it completely. And uh, there was also their tell-all documentary on um, Netflix that certainly garnered a lot of worldwide attention. So whether or not you are invested in the royal family, it doesn't matter because some of these narratives are ones that just sort of break through all the news clutter and become things that we can all become attached to and talk about and everybody has an opinion on. And the great thing is, in divisive times, these are common factors that bring us all together. These are things that we can all celebrate. A hundred percent. Now, one that you can't celebrate is when Twitter became X. So I'm not sure that uh, that was a good thing, but it was certainly something that continues to change the social media landscape for better or for worse. And you know that I've always said to you that Twitter is something of a cesspool. Um, Since it became X, I'm not sure that it's any different. Do people still go to Twitter? Yes. Has threads by Meta become a viable competitor? I have to tell you, I joined. I think a lot of people joined. Are a lot of people posting on it? I don't know. They're certainly not getting the traction that they still do on X. So, you know, X still sort of, you know, rules in that particular space, although Meta is maybe trying to gain some traction. But I would have to say that Twitter becoming X was certainly one of those pop culture moments that we definitely all um, we all got behind. All right. I could do a half hour here on this, but I want to get right to the point because we're really out of time. But what do you foresee? What trends? What what should we watch for in uh, 2024? More Taylor Swift. More (laughs) Travis Kelsey. And now it's all going to be about will the relationship last? This is all celeb. See, I was going to ask you when it all burns out. Celebrities Mm. is not Mm. going to wane. Our obsession with the uh, royal family is not going to wane. We will still get behind the unusual and the quirky if we can all find a way to gather around it. So, you know, pop culture is one of those things that's a sign of the times and of the way we're feeling and of the way that the world is. And, And those things that rise to the top are so surprising because, Scott, it is always organic. It's not something that's always manufactured, but it's always organic. So I think 2024 will always be, will definitely be another great pop culture year. Escapism, Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert, as always. Thanks so much. All the best over the holidays. And thanks so much for all you've contributed uh, over the year. We greatly, greatly appreciate it. Be well. Well, I love being on this show. Thanks to you and thanks to the producers who always bug me and remind me, Alyssa, you're on in 30 seconds. So (laughs) thank you for continuing to have me on and best of the season and happy new year to everybody. Uh, We're talking to uh, a lot of the guests that... um, 
we're fortunate to uh, fortunate enough to have on over the course of the year who volunteer their time and and really help us add some depth to the stories of the day. One of these guys uh, we have right now, he's uh, I'd say my favorite, Elliot Tepper, emeritus professor of political science, Carleton University. And I, I say that, Elliot, because only you are on the phone with me right now, and the other ones would be like, "Hey, come on." Uh, but thank you so much for taking the time. I really do appreciate how much you contribute and, and of your time that you give us over the course of the year. So thank you so much and uh, all the best for this uh, holiday season. Uh, and thanks for taking the time. Sure, Scott. It's a, a pleasure working with you and trying to make sense of our of our world, which unfortunately is nothing but jolly at this time of year. Yeah. I know exactly. So let's get let's start with an update where we are with Hamas and Israeli conflict. Uh, I know that uh, there, there's been a lot of diplomacy going on behind the scenes, especially in the last uh, 24, 48, 72 hours. Where are we with that? Um, is is there any going to is there going to be any sort of humanitarian aid or or truce or ceasefire, whatever you want to call it? Sure. Well, I'm trying to stand back from the whole year and what's the big picture here, and uh, then we have to talk about the particularities within that. And the big picture here, unfortunately, is that uh, there's two or three big pictures, but one of them is, is that Iran has made a remarkably effective geopolitical move. Uh, they have moved their chess pieces around in such a way they've stymied uh, their regional rival, and that's Saudi Arabia and the Sunni bloc, but they've also made a major step in the direction of their uh, their mono, maniacal goal of eliminating Israel. And this is through their uh, working with Hamas. And Hamas, in turn, uh, has a great playbook, and it works every single time. Uh, first, they, in this case, with Iran's training and, and assistance and undoubtedly some intelligence help, they committed a, even their worst atrocity ever. Uh, President Biden, just as a, to remind us, said at the outset of all this, Look, when we were attacked and the Twin Towers came down, we lost 3,000 people, and we had a global war on terror. Israel's a tiny place. It's like the equivalent of losing 50,000 people. Uh, and uh, we know in a most barbaric ISIS-type attack, absolutely predictable Israel has responded. Uh, the, uh, what I've been calling now uh, Hamas, and this is their playbook. They expect yeah. that the people on the surface will pay such a high cost that pressure will be built on Israel to let Hamas off the hook. And that's what a ceasefire would be. An absolute ceasefire means leave Hamas in place. Uh, mm -hmm. You ask the question, what's going on? The question of humanitarian pause is really on the books right now. The uh, United States has said, we will not go along this time with Hamas playbook. We're not going to give them a ceasefire, but we do want a humanitarian pause. Everybody, I mean, it's just terrible stuff coming out of yeah. what I'm calling the the involuntary martyrs to the Hamas cause, uh, the human shields that they they employ all over uh, Gaza, all of Gaza basically, by embedding themselves in the, in there. So right now, yes, there's there's progress in that the UN now and the Security Council, which has some teeth, has apparently agreed as of now to something like a humanitarian pause, leading to a more permanent cessation of hostilities. Israel, quietly on the side, has been working with uh, Cyprus. They have very good relations with Cyprus to bring in a humanitarian corridor from the sea as well. So some aid will be going into, uh, into the uh, Gaza Strip somehow or another, but 
the question of hostage release is still very much up in the air. We don't know if this time there is going to be a hostage uh, for prisoner exchange, the hostages that were taken by Hamas for the release of prisoners that Hamas wants out of, of Israeli jails. So there may be some good news. We're trying to find some good news at this time of year, possibly on that front. What about options for Palestinians? Where do they go beyond the arms of Hamas? Well, that's a very good question. They, they go into each other's arms. My, you know, everybody's saying, well, what can we do? What can we do? The example we have from the past that might work is the case of Cambodia after their if you'll have a good long memory on this, when the Pol Pot regime took over and then it got crushed, uh, an interim uh, regime was set up under UN auspices, which led to the people uh, having an opportunity in Cambodia to actually vote. Unfortunately, Hun Sen took that over and made it a dictatorship. But the point is, is uh, yeah, the, the alternative for uh, out of the arms of Hamas, and I want to broaden that out a bit, but out of the arms of Hamas is into the arms of the people of Gaza. That has to ultimately be the solution. And more broadly, while all the focus is, oh, we have to do something because this is a Palestinian issue, what about Lebanon? Uh, Hezbollah, another and much more important uh, uh, arm of the Iranian state, I'm trying to find the right words here, uh, they can bring the same death and destruction on Lebanon as they have done in the past. That's got nothing to do with the Palestinian cause. And more broadly, while we're at it, what about Iran, which is under the control of the Ayatollah's regime, which repeatedly crushes its own people, and they put down their own, their own um, most recent uprising against them, led by young women. The uh, another young woman just was killed by the morality police in custody. So, you know, Hamas out of Gaza, Hezbollah out of Lebanon, and the sheikhs out of the Ayatollahs out of Iran. That would be a sensible. Uh, call. That's mm. not a call that I'm hearing, however. Uh, and obviously a much bigger call than what we're uh, hearing now. And yes, if that's, that's not that, if we it, want to bring yeah. some, some benefit to the people of the region. What do you see for 2024? I mean, you know, I, it's it's impossible to pick something that stands out from the last year because it's all a piece of, of a greater puzzle. So rather than go there, where do you see this unfolding? What do you, what do you see uh, the biggest challenges heading into the new year? I think the, the contest broadly that has been defined by, by, by President Biden and us, for that matter, the, the big fight between the big push, the big geopolitical struggle between the democracies and autocracies of the world. What we've seen growing now is that what used to be called the axis of evil has now been firmed up by what we see happening in Ukraine as well as in uh, in the Middle East, and that is the arrangement between Putin's Russia, not Russia, but Putin's Russia, and the Iranians and the North Koreans with quiet backstopping by China. So this kind of geopolitical attempt to reorganize the world is the big struggle uh, going forward in 2024. Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Again, Elliot, thanks so much for your time and for your vision. Very much appreciated, and uh, hopefully we'll chat again in the new year. Have a great one. Indeed. Well, it's the season of light. Uh, we just went through the winter solstice. So, you know, a season of light for, for you and, our, and everybody who listens, and I look forward to working with you in 2024. All right. Thank you so much. Eric Alper is with us, music publicist, commentator, and here now. Eric, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. 
I, I'm doing, I think, better than the producer's chair. Who's taking over the asylum? <laughs> That's really what's happened here. All right, Eric, uh, thank you for taking the time, not only today on a very, very busy day, but also uh, over the course of the year. We greatly appreciate you volunteering your time and, and coming out to help oh, us. Happy to do that. Uh, very much so, and your expertise and such. All right, what stands out for you musically from last year? Is it is it Taylor Swift, Taylor Swift, Taylor Swift? It's essentially Taylor Swift. Not only did she become the first entertainer to be named Person of the Year by Time magazine, but she also crafted the very first billion-dollar tour with Eras, and then she hit number one on the box office with her Eras tour movie, and if that wasn't enough, then she made the NFL ratings skyrocket whenever she decided to go visit her boyfriend working for the Kansas City Chiefs. So it was really all about Taylor, just being able to move the needle in so many different directions with her sales figures, with the ability to uh, kind of get her audience all politicized up when she told people to get out and make sure that you can register to vote for 2024. 340,000 Americans bought their voting card for the very first time. So it was really Taylor's world. We're just living in a how long does that last? And you've been around Eric long enough to see uh, this many times. I mean, this is a star that's burning incredibly bright. Uh, is it just all in management? How do you how do you keep this going? How do you manage this moving forward? Um, you uh, you figure out a way of how to colonize Mars. And you become the biggest <laughs> artist on there. Um, no, this is going to be going on for the next decade. The only thing that Taylor can even be compared to at this point would be Beatlemania in 1963-64. This is bigger than Michael Jackson's Thriller. This is bigger than Madonna and Bruce Springsteen in the 80s. Bigger than Nirvana in the 90s. There's There's never been somebody that dominated so many different parts of culture and politics and sports and government. She had people in in political power, literally begging her on social media to visit their city or state or yeah, really changing city names when she comes there. In fact, on the day that she announced her Eras tour, when those tickets first got on sale, she moved the GDP of the U.S. by 4%. So you would have to go back to the Beatles just to be able to, to, to kind of figure out how many touch tones she's done. And there's four of them, and there's one of Taylor. Uh, how, in, and here's the difference over time, how much is she in control of all of this? Even as it gets as big as it is, she's still driving the bus. Yeah, she's still driving the bus. Even though that she likes to play the victim, you know, she still likes to, to be a little bit hard done by on social media when things don't go her way or when the narrative gets a little bit away from her. But she's really in territory that nobody has ever been in. So if she wants to take a, a year off after the Eras tour finishes, nobody would fault her for that and she would still have an audience. Uh, but she's going to be... The, the most dominant figure in pop culture, at least till 2026. Because don't forget, she still has another year left to go on that Eras tour. This right. could be a two and a half billion dollar tour by the end of it all. What about saturation? When does that come into play, Eric? Or does it here? Um, I think it already has. I think it's only natural when you're this big that you end up yeah. with people kind of going out of their way not to converge with 
Taylor Swift or any kind of popular music. It's like that with everything. It's like that with rap music when rap became popular. There's just people who just don't even want to go there anymore. But I think after, you know, maybe 2026, she'll be done the tour. She'll have done all of the re-recording of her past albums. Um, I think it's time to, as you too said, back in the days of the Joshua Tree, they need to go away and dream it up all over again. And I think that that's what Taylor is going to have to do. Wow, that's an interesting way of putting it. Uh, Eric Elper with us, publicist and music commentator. Again, Eric, as always, thanks so much for the time over the course of the year. We'll connect again in 2024. All the best. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Scott. We'll talk soon. Have a great holiday break. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Looking back on the year, this is the last show of 2023. And uh, as well as uh, thanking some of the great guests that have uh, taken time out of their day over the course of the last year uh, to give us their expertise. Another one of those, Bill Brio, TV critic, author. He is with us now. Bill, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Doing okay, Scott. How are you? So far, so good. What stands out as you look back, uh, you know, TV, what we're viewing, what we're watching, and how big an impact is the writer's strike as you look back on the last year? Is is that the biggest deal of, of 2023? Yeah, it was an unusual year. And certainly the writers and the actors strike threw a monkey wrench into a lot of it. And um, I think that, uh, though, it wasn't the only thing. Like, there was just a big slowdown in TV production anyway. The studios had realized this big dream of streaming being the great answer really had a lot of problems. The number one being, how do you offer to sell something that is bottomless? Uh, it means you have to make a lot of television. And I think that that just ran out of gas at a certain point. And so now they're all, there's talk of Paramount and Warner Brothers merging and different things. So um, that was part of what was going on already when the writers and actors strike happened. And so uh, we'll see going forward how it's going to be rebuilt in the new year. Uh, so with that, because, again, we've just come through a global pandemic in the last few years and we saw people consuming a lot of content. Um, and, and as you mentioned, the strikes and such. Is the template changing yet again? Uh, do you know what the future holds, What, how this will be distributed, how we'll consume it moving forward? Wow. You know, it's crazy, Scott. You and I have been talking for, what, 20 years? And yeah. It just seems every single year there's something, right, that's like, yeah. how is this going to change everything? It's, uh, it's TV's just in a constant state of revolution. But I do think that the biggie now is money and um the idea that uh, it's just very expensive to produce good shows. Um, we're going to see less, probably these network runs of 22 episodes. I don't think that's going to be sustainable. Uh, we're probably going to get less television. And uh, already, you know, you look at CBC, they're, they just laid off 600 or will be laying off 800 workers, 10% of their workforce. Um and stay saying, you know, we're going to have to get rid of some of our programs. The runs will be shorter. So it's impacting in uh, the public and the private networks. And it's going to be um, very different in an age when we can sort of stream old shows. Mm. So maybe consumers won't feel so uh, left alone because you can kind of see everything now, even though if they may not be producing as much in the future. 
That that's my next point, sort of, Bill. Is less better because, as you said, when the whole streaming thing started, it was like you you couldn't buy enough content. They were putting anything up there, anything <laughs> that would just provide hours and hours of content. Now, of course, having perhaps difficulty trying to monetize all of that. But are we going to see the herd perhaps be called, but maybe a better product as opposed to fifty-seven channels, nothing on? <laughs> well, again, yeah, it's like. Um... You know, will there be less but better? And I think yeah. back when there was only a certain number of networks, I mean, there was always good shows and bad shows. And I think now there's more good shows and bad shows. Um, you notice the bad shows more, maybe. And um, I, what we're finding, though, is that, you know, we're still down to creators and producers and writers uh, who can pull this off. And a lot of us are thinking, wow, my favorite show is whatever pick one of them only murders in the building or uh julia mm-hmm. about uh, this drama with uh, julia the chef the second and third seasons don't seem as good or as special or as cool and that seems to be the pattern for a lot of them so it's just you can't assume people will be brilliant every time you know even the beatles ran out of great album yeah. ideas so- <laughs> i was when you were talking about that that's what i was thinking about it's like how long can you keep putting out hit singles right Right. Uh, sooner or later, it catches up to you. Do people have as much time as we think to consume this stuff? Because there is so much. No, I don't. <laughs> I think it's hard. And and this you is know, what you do for a living. It is. So people are always saying, like, what are you watching? And I'm like, well, uh, sports. You know, like, <laughs> if, if all you're going to watch is hockey and football, um, you're not going to get around to stuff. I watched and I love Dick Van Dyke. And so the mm-hmm. two hour salute to Dick Van Dyke was last night and CBS, God bless him, 98 years old. He's out there. And I watched half of it because I just don't have time to watch all of it. And that's PVRing it and scanning it. And uh, I, it was better than I thought. I thought I was prepared to be very disappointed. It seemed very heartfelt and sincere and joyous. And that's exactly what you want to see on December 21st on television. Good point. Bill Brio with his TV critic and author. Bill, as always, thanks so much for the time and uh, your help over the course of the year. We look forward to talking to you again uh, next year. Thanks so much. Have a great one. Oh, you too, Scott. Take care. 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, talking to some of our favorite guests uh, over the course of the year and getting their takes on their expertise as we, uh, you know, I know we're still all trying to get it uh, into uh, into the Christmas season and the holiday season and such, uh, but then it's New Year's, so you're starting to see all those best of, worst of lists and and uh, predictions and such for the new year. Let's bring in Henry Jasek, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. He is here now. Henry, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing well. Thank you. So, Henry, as you look back at the last year as a, as a political science professor, what are your thoughts? What, do you, what stands out for you? Well, I just basically look at the two main parties and see what, ha- what happened over the past year. And I think uh, really for the first eight months at least, uh, you know, the conservative leader and the conservative party looked very good. They were just going, you know, get, getting more and more strength, opened up a very big, uh, you know, uh, lead over, over the liberals. It looked like the liberals were, you know, going to fall apart and kick out their leader. Uh, and then as we got closer to the December, we started to see that things are changing a little bit, that there was 
the, the liberals uh, got some, you know, back up on some ground that they lost. They're still far behind, uh, you know, from, from the conservatives. But they started to, you know, get better. And what also, I think a couple of things that, that might be involved there. Uh, first of all, they started doing uh, things that are, you know, programs that would save people money, which I think is very important. Po- pocketbook uh, things uh, may not apply, apply to everybody, but it's, for some people it saves them money. And, and also the economy showed signs of uh, being better. And particularly people seem to be ha- uh, spending a lot of money, maybe a lot more than last year. Uh, on Christmas, and that's always a good thing for a political party. And then when we look to the U.S., the same thing's happening in the U.S. Uh, the the inflation rate is uh, dropping down in in both countries. And when you ask uh, people, uh, you know, how how is the economy treating you? And uh, are you you know? And they say, well, you know, I'm I'm spending more money. Uh, people people are in a, in a good mood, probably better than last Christmas. So uh, actually, we see, you know, on the U.S., uh, Biden's uh, numbers are getting a little bit better, um, as actually I think he's leading by one point over Trump. But uh, and so so something has happened there. And the question is, what's you know, what kind of trend are we going to see now in the upcoming year? Because these things go up and down. And uh, but right now, that that's the thing that uh, I I pay attention to is essentially public opinion about the parties. And also how the economy is doing, because I think at the end of the day, uh, the economy is the most important thing to people. And as you mentioned, Henry, we certainly are starting to see, um, you know, it, it may not be all sunny ways again, but it's certainly the, the bleeding has stopped. We're starting, you know, to see things stabilize a little bit. Right. Uh, GDP still down or, or, or certainly flat anyway. Um, so, but again, as you're making reference to, as time goes on, uh, and they're talking about cuts in the U.S. for the interest rates and such, it, the economy should be getting better in the next year. Do you think that will play into the liberals hands as we get closer to the next election and and polyev has is run out of gas well yeah i mean the thing is he'll have to work harder i mean i think he'll have to uh uh enough, would have to basically come up with more positive programs he's got by by being negative you know really attacking uh yeah. the uh, trudeau and it reminds me a lot of uh diefenbaker uh if i i followed yeah. that you know historically and he was he he was great on you know when he he could take advantage of uh, problems and uh, really beat up the uh, liberals as he did in the late 1950s and then he he sounds a lot like him and uh, but the thing is if things start to improve both in the economy um, and and you know and uh, things that the government is offering people uh, then then that might that might turn things around but. Uh, it's the liberals still have a long way to go they have to there's they have to basically concentrate i think again on uh, on on pocketbook issues people you know there's just a lot of people who felt that they were really beat up by the by the pandemic uh, that uh, in and inflation particularly mm-hmm. and now that it's dropping down it's not where you know economists we, you know, would say we're in the happy area, but we're getting close to it. So, yeah. you know, we're we need. Well, maybe I'm looking if if we can keep drop down to two percent inflation and hold that for for a good part of the year. Well, that's going to be good. Good luck, you know. Good luck for Trudeau. 
Uh, and, you know, you bring up a fascinating point here in that, um, you know, as the economy does uh, continue to get better, is that going to be enough runway for him? Is it too little, too late? We were talking uh, not that long ago about, well, and still are, uh, his numbers are down. Others within the party have higher approval numbers. Will he walk away? He certainly made it known that that's not going to be the case, that he is going to uh, to certainly stay on. And at the end of the day, why would he step down? Because time is on his side if he runs the clock out right. uh, and things just, you know, gradually get better anyway. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the conservatives always have a, have a means of shooting themselves in the foot in some way. Why not just run out the clock? As, many, as much as people may want a change, uh, for him, the best strategy is to run out the clock, isn't it? Yeah, well, it also, to keep up, as I said, I think it's the, the clock is on his side. He. He still, you know, he has to basically change policies that really affect people's uh, economy, you know, personal economy in their homes. And uh, that's what he has to do. And I think the big, you know, big criticism I would make in terms of, you know, him being popular or not, he's very similar to his father. Neither of them actually really, uh, when they were premier, uh, prime ministers, never really warmed up to putting a lot of energy into the economy and that that his father run into, ran into problems like that even even sooner than he did, than Justin has and uh, Justin's run into the same things and there's a lot of you know cultural things and things that are interesting to to Trudeau uh, and maybe very good things but they're not things that people think are really important to them and, and are we spe- are we spending too much time trying to analyze the policy here? And you know, you brought up his dad, yeah. and you know, he, whether you liked his dad's politics or not, he was an academic. He was a pretty smart guy. And I remember way back, no and yeah, whether you liked what he was doing or not, he was he was he was an academic. Whereas even you know, back to when the prime minister started, Justin Trudeau, you know, I had many on the show call him vacuous, a lightweight, mm-hmm. and and maybe that's just what we're seeing here. It's not about party policy it's does he really have the capacity to, to digest and 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 do all of this stuff well i i think yeah but i but also i'm i i think the his policies are lightweighted you know it is i mean i listen yeah. to him i mean to me and i say oh you know it's sort of boring to me i mean it's important things that are important yep. to him but it's boring to me and i i think probably boring uh, you know, to a lot of Canadians, they want to they want to see the meat. You know, they want to see mm-hmm. how how would their people are going to get uh, better off, and you know how you know they, there's a lot of recovery that needs to be made, economic recovery. And if he can do that, well, he's fine. But if he ignores that, he's just he's. Yeah, I think he's not going to be able to ever get back up there. Henry Jasek with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Henry, as always, thanks so much for the time you give us all year. Greatly appreciated and hope to chat again next year. Okay, happy holidays to you. Queens Park, in the last year, a buzz of activity. Let's bring in Colin DeMello, Queens Park Bureau Chief for Global News. He is here now. Colin, thanks so much for taking the time uh, for us on a Friday, heading into a holiday weekend. Much appreciated. Hope you're doing well. I'm I'm doing I'm tired after this year, but I'm but <laughs> yeah. I'm doing well. <laughs> I can imagine you are. Uh, there was certainly no shortage of stories coming out of Queens Park. Uh, I mean, you know, do I ask you for what stands out, or is there just one piece in the puzzle? But I'm guessing that the word uh, green belt has somewhere uh, woven its way into this. 
Yeah, you know, there was there was one day, just to give you an idea, there was one day I was sitting down watching the news with my wife and, and watching a story that we had done. And and I remember telling her, I said, hey, remember that story we did at the beginning of the year about the stag and doe at the premier's house? And, and remember the story about the premier's cell phone and how he doesn't provide um, yeah. or doesn't use his work cell phone, only uses his personal cell phone. Remember the green belt? And I said to her, all of these stories were connected this year. And, and I think it I blew her mind. Um, and, and really, I think that is the, the theme of this year, right? There's just so much related to the premier, his personal life, his personal relationships, who he talks to, who, uh, you know, he has uh, owes favors to. Um, and, and all of that kind of came to the fore this year. And to be honest, you know, we have really just scratched the surface with some of this stuff. And so um, the green belt, of course, was the story out of Queens Park for 2023. But then there was also a whole bunch of other things, right? From that stag and doe to the use of the premier cell phone, transparency, resignations, and everything in between. It has been it has been a, a, a topsy turvy kind of year. More to do with his personal life or the the man himself, the personality, the Doug Ford himself, as opposed to policies within his government. Well, I think Doug Ford is a unique kind of politician, right? One who yeah. always tried to reject the notion of being a politician and wanted to run the province like a business. And the problem is, is you know, while his intent seemed to be pure, his his you know what he wants to do with the province of Ontario is. Uh, you know, without a doubt, uh, unassailable. He wants to, you know, make life better for Ontarians, mm -hmm. build more housing, uh, improve uh, kind of the infrastructure uh, in this province. There is a lot of relationships that the premier has that have have you know led to a lot of questions. And by trying to run the province like a business, we've seen that the province often runs you know, faster than they can actually um, have the civil service catch up, right? So so mm -hmm. the province is a big bureaucracy. It takes a lot sometimes to move around a ship that large. And by trying to run it like a business, the province has, the, the government has often gotten ahead of itself and gotten into a lot of trouble. And so I think that's where we see a lot of the reversals really stem out of, where they mm -hmm. try to run it like a business. They They're trying to be too efficient moving too quickly and not thinking about the consequences of their actions. And those consequences always, always come back to bite them. That's a fascinating way to look at it, Colin. Um, how do we bring in, we've only got about a minute or two left here. Um, what about uh, Merritt Stiles, NDP, now Bonnie Crombie with the Liberals? How is that going to change the tone moving forward? It, I think a lot of people are expecting a feisty uh, legislature. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be feisty. Bonnie Crombie doesn't have a seat in the legislature. If one pops up in Mississauga, she says she will definitely run. Uh, but Bonnie Crombie definitely has already proven to kind of get under the skin of the progressive conservatives. They've launched attack ads against Bonnie Crombie. You'll note that they didn't really launch any attack ads against the NDP because they don't really view them as a threat. So Bonnie Crombie being on the scene now is definitely a huge, huge challenge for Doug Ford and the progressive conservatives. And we've seen the Ontario Liberals polling numbers start to rise slowly, but it could grow uh, over the next couple of years. Are you surprised to see those ads from the Conservatives now? I mean, so early? I mean, virtually, as she was being crowned, uh, these were coming out. Are you surprised to see them at this point? No, not at all. I mean, they Conservatives take a, a page from the Stephen Harper uh, school of Framing your opponents before they have the opportunity to frame themselves. Mm. And that is incredibly important. Stephen Harper and the conservatives, 
when he was a leader were incredibly adept at being able to take their uh, their their opponents and really paint a picture to the public of who they were before they really had the chance to present themselves to the public. So the progressive conservatives are trying to do the same thing. But by 2026, Doug Ford would have been in power for eight years. And, you know, eight years for any premier, prime minister, any leader is a long time in the eyes of the public. So change might be natural for within the appetite of the of the the voting public. So, you know, they are going to have a tough battle ahead of them, no matter what they do over the next two and a half years. Uh, only got a few seconds left. How do the NDP stay in the spotlight, especially with Bonnie Crombie and the Liberals? Well, they're going to have to really start to hold Doug Ford's feet to the fire. I mean, they have that unique ability because they are in the legislature. They are the official opposition. So they have the uh, the ability to hold the government to account. Sometimes they're successful. Sometimes they're not. I think the NDP really has to decide what they're going to be about, try to create a cohesive strategy from what we see uh, in the legislature and really start to narrow in their focus on what they challenge the government uh, about. But it seems like if Bonnie Crombie is going to try to Cohort those center voters or their center right voters, the NDP too might have a very difficult time in the years ahead. Colin DeMello with us, Queens Park Bureau Chief, Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight. Colin, as always, thanks so much for all your time. Greatly appreciated. Get some rest. I, yes, I plan to not do anything until the new year. So Merry Christmas, <laughs> Happy New Year. I'll see you in 2024. Thank you, Colin. Much appreciated. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Uh, talking about the year that was as we wind up 2023, let's bring in Larry DeAnne, former mayor, city of Hamilton, and great contributor to the show whenever we ask him. Uh, Larry, thanks so much for taking the time today and over the course of the year. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing very well, Scott, and it's always um, a pleasure to talk to you. and. Uh and your listeners. What stands out for you as you look back at city politics, uh, life in the hammer over the last uh, year? What stands out? Well, let me start with life in the hammer uh, first, and then um, I'll, I'll uh, get to the uh, to the politics of it. Um, if if you look at the city right now, it's it's a bit of a city of contrast. Uh, there's lots of economic activity going on. I've never seen so many cranes, mm. especially in the downtown area, but really throughout the municipality. Uh, and that speaks well of the economic development people are building, people are investing. Uh, and um, and uh, I think that, that that is quite healthy. But the contrast, of course, is with those who aren't as well off. And we've never yeah. seen uh, the kinds of tense cities and, and concerns about encampments uh, and the violence in some of them, um, even to the point of... Uh, of uh, um, some people have lost their lives uh, through misadventure in some of these places. Uh, and so that speaks to the deep poverty that some citizens uh, are feeling. Um, and of course, uh, these contrasts, um, depending on your perspective, uh, are either encouraging or very discouraging. But the point is that they exist and they both need to be addressed in some appropriate way. Continue the the bullish um, economic uh, uptick, uh, but also try to deal with with those who are less fortunate. Um, in terms of in terms of the city politics, I would say it's been a, a year of transition. Uh, we had an election a year ago, uh, now more uh, than a year ago, a new council, 
uh, has almost been in place for a year. And uh, there was a wholesale change, if you remember, if listeners remember, um, not yep. only did the mayor change, but uh, a number of uh, uh, councillors um, who either didn't run or were defeated. Um, uh, and therefore, we have a, a brand new council. And so the transition was made. You know, they had to deal with the budget right away. Uh, and that was a budget, you know, that was set by the previous council. So they really... Uh, didn't own the budget, as it were. But now, after this year, uh, they own um, whatever budget they're, it, they're working on right now and will and will be passed in the early new year. So uh, the transition was from being a new council to now being fully in charge of all the levers of power. And it's a good story and a bad story as well. The, the negative side, of course, if you read the uh, the accounts of those who watch City Hall. It's a split um, council. Mm -hmm. There are um, uh, some who are ideologically opposed to others. Um, and I'm told that uh, the opposition isn't just on substance. It's also personal um, animosity in some cases, not in all cases. And to some extent, was over thus. Um, all councils, uh, you know, when they get into the heat of debate, sometimes take it personally. And we've seen examples of that in the past. But this time it seems to be hinged on ideology. Uh, and there are some who are very left-leaning. Um, I would say four or five, certainly four, uh, who are very left-leaning. And um, I'm told by some who again watch City Hall that they not only disagree with their colleagues around the horseshoe, but dislike them for being um, opposed to what they view as the righteous way to govern the city. And that's never good. I think debate is good, uh, it's the democratic way. But at the end of the day, once you make your vote, um, you know, you can, as, as the saying goes, go out and have a beer um, and show some collegiality because issues are so complex that your, um, your opponent today uh, on, on, on a certain issue maybe your friend tomorrow on another issue. So you need to keep those personal relationships going so that you can work together. Uh, in terms of, in terms of uh, the mayor, of course, we have a new mayor, but a very experienced person, someone who's been on council before. Uh, I served with Andrea Horvath uh, in the past and always found her to be a reasonable person. Then she took on a um, highly uh, political and partisan role as the leader as a member of the NDP party in Toronto and then the leader of uh, the NDP party in Toronto uh, and did fairly well. I mean, she didn't become premier, but she brought that party to uh, opposition status and then, of course, ran uh, as a mayor. And uh, I knew that uh, she'd have to temper uh, the ideology because the mayor's job is a very practical one uh, where if you're, you can't be guided by the, by the sort of platform that the party puts forward, you have to deal with the real issues that occur. And sometimes you're going to lean left, sometimes you're going to lean right. And the best way, and this may be my predilection, um, you know, you govern from the middle and you do what's necessary on, on the edges as issues arrive. And I think Andrew has done a pretty good job of that. In fact, I recall um, that there was a, one of your colleagues who also writes for the uh, local paper uh, pointed out that, that she really seems to be leading from the middle uh, mm. As opposed to what some people um, might have feared, uh, uh, you know, leaning from from her partisan past. Uh, so I, I think she's been very successful. However, there are some storm clouds. 
and they all have to do with money, and they all have to do with budgets. Mm-hmm. And for example, you know, we're facing, I'm, I'm told, a 12 or 14 percent uh, hike in budgets. I don't think they'll ever approve uh, something as outrageous as that, um, because it would be, um, I think, uh, damaging to, to, to the community. Uh, if they were to do that, <clears throat> and yet those those expense, expenditures are there, some of them are self-inflicted wounds. They've gone. The city has gone on a bit of a of a hiring binge, um, especially around uh, bike lanes and and uh, some pet projects uh, uh, on the left. Mm. Um, not that they are not worthwhile, but they had a uh, I can't remember if it was a 25 or 30 year old plan that they telescoped into four years. Uh, which meant that they had to hire a whole bunch of people to look after uh, those issues. Um, and that's just one of them. That, that, that's just a multi-million dollar expenditure. And then, of course, uh, the uh, the uh, inquiry into the Red Hill, which um, cost, uh, I can't remember now, it was 28 or $29 million, uh, which, which was, um, I think, money that was thrown away because they really found out of what they already knew at the end of that uh, situation. And that's just the beginning because lawyers, as we've been reading, are lining up with class action um, suits, hoping to get some money for their clients, some of whom had injuries or accidents mm. and even death. So we're going to see that dollar um, go up. And then there are some other pet projects as well that are going to add to the woes. Um, mm. You know, apparently it's going to cost $28 million uh to change the uh, the direction of Main Street from a one way yeah. to two ways, I that's that's amazing that 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 kind of expenditure would be there, and of course the uh, the LRT which LRT you know, of course yeah we're going to be talking cool. about the LRT I think we're going to be talking about the LRT forever Larry I mean I, I'm not sure when that'll all uh, come around we're out of time Larry but always a fascinating discussion thank you so much for the time and we will chat again in the new year Larry Diani former mayor city of Hamilton thank you Larry. Happy New Year. Bringing in Eric Cam, professor of uh, economics for Toronto Metropolitan University and is with us now. Eric, thank you for the time, not only today, but over the course of the year. We're very, very thankful that you take the time to uh, share your knowledge with us. Uh, hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. And I, I just want to say happy holidays to all of you. It's, it's always an honor to be asked. It truly is. And to have stimulating conversation with you and then whatever I have with Scott Radley. So it's it's wonderful. All right. Great to have you here. As you look back, I mean, as I'm thinking economically, looking back over the year uh, and, and, you know, you think of where we've been in the last few years with the pandemic and what was supposed to be the roaring 20s and everybody coming out of the barn and all that sort of thing. Uh, it seems reality or the rubber hit the road this year where Canadians priorities change. They realize there's, this is less to do with uh, fashionable issues and more to do with the hard reality of where the economy is. And, and people started to feel the pinch. What stands out for you as you look back over the course of the last year? I think pinch is generous. I mean, as an economist, when I look back over the last 12 months, I really think about one word, and that is affordability. Because as an economist, Mm. everything else is just academic speak. But I think economic health is linked to physical health, is linked to mental health. And I think it all comes back to affordability and sort of that economic and physical calm that ensues when you can feed, house, and clothe your family. And I don't think that it's been as difficult to do that um, as since the Great Depression. And and I'm not saying that lightly, but I truly believe 
we're living in that kind of a time. And I just took a look at some of the end of year statistics. I mean, it's not hard to pick out household indebtedness is rising very quickly. Unemployment to job ratio rising. Population growth far outpacing employment. And that one really bothers me because I don't think we should use immigration as a growth strategy. I think we should have immigration, yeah. but it's not a driver of growth. CPI, I mean, this is a really funny one, right? When you look at the price level, people say it's falling. But much like my first wife convinced me that we were married, I can play a lot of games with numbers. <laughs> and if I look at just food and shelter, CPI is still rising quickly. Real GDP is at zero growth. Labor productivity is at zero growth. And if that sounds dismal, then economics is living up to its name, Scott. We're at a bad time right now, and affordability has never been more of a luxury. And I'm hoping, hoping that that changes in 2024. You said something uh, very important, Eric, and I'm not sure this is resonating with Canadians yet, and that the monetary or the, the growth policy for this government was if you just increase increase the bejeebers out of immigration, you're going to fix your economic woes. And I'm not sure everybody realizes that that was a plan for this government. And 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 clearly, it's it, it's inflamed the situation, has it not? It's made everything worse. And again, I'm going to say it a thousand times on every show. I'm not yeah. anti-immigration. I'll be yeah. blunt. No Jewish person should be anti-immigration because we all came mm -hmm. from somewhere. And a long time ago, people were turned away and they didn't live to see tomorrow. So I'm not anti-immigration. But when you look at the drivers of growth in a capitalist economy, immigration is not one of them. And so for our government to fall back on it and say, well, we're trying that, to me says there's a massive disconnect to your point where people feel the pinch. People are understanding affordability is the issue, but I'm not sure that our government does. And I think that's frankly why Mr. Polyev is gaining so much traction because he's the only one up there yelling and screaming, what about average Canadians who can no longer afford their average lives? And I think that that's a lesson I'd like to see Mr. Trudeau and his band of merry people recognize before it's far too late. Are you surprised how quickly this turned around, even, you know, as far as the prime minister's polling numbers? Like, it, it just seemed that all of a sudden people went, whoa, that's enough. I mean, this really quickly turned. Yeah, I guess I am surprised because I generally find people not stupid. I don't want to say that because I actually never underestimate people. But I think people sometimes are a little bit myopic and it takes them a while to catch onto the reality train. but. This time, it's almost been transparent because such a massive population of Canadians is in that same pinch you're talking about. It's from British Columbia all the way to Nova Scotia, and it, it's across the country. And it's people that have never been in financial straits before that are in financial straits now. And some of them, Scott, are looking in the mirror going, what did I do wrong? Because I don't make less money. and the reality is they did nothing wrong. They're just living in a time of, for a while there, uncontrolled inflation and then uncontrolled interest rates. And still we've got about 60 to 70% of mortgages in this country that are going to come due in the next year or two. And I'm, I'm terrified there's going to be blood on the streets when those people realize that they can't afford their homes. And so as an economist, as a dad, as a husband, as a, a human, I really feel bad when people say to me, 
I didn't change my life and now I can't afford it. And I wish that the prime minister could hear those stories. Um, we're seeing, uh, let's move forward with interest rates and such, uh, bank of Canada saying, uh, holding things steady, didn't want to, uh, uh, open up any sort of, uh, inclination that there might be a, re- a rate read, uh, reduction in the next year. U S completely different. They were announcing that you could see up to three interest rate declines in the United States. Why the United States looking at it from their point of view and Canada from still a very cautious point. Because if I went back and I rhymed you off those stats that we talked about a couple minutes ago in the United States, those stats are now trending upward. They're already into a pretty significant recovery. And so they can at least fall back on a foundation of saying, we're going to be in the position to make these interest rate cuts in the future. I frankly don't think that Canada has any incentive. Canadians have incentive, but the Bank of Canada, the government of Canada, I don't see the incentive yet because they've kind of made it their holy war that they're going to get that inflation number to 2% and affordability be damned. And so I think until we get to that magic number, which by the way, if you said to me, Eric, is that a good magic number? No, there shouldn't be a good magic number because economics is fluid and times change. And so you can't just have a number and say, that's it. That's the holy grail. But our government says that's the holy grail. And so I don't see anything happening. Frankly, I'd be shocked if the interest rate fell in 2024. But if it does, I think it'll be after September because it's going to take us that long to even start to turn around these numbers. As I've said before on your show, I wish we could pull a lever and have economics work, but we're not physics. Our laboratory is the real world. And so it takes a long time for growth policies to come to fruition. And guess what, Scott, right now, There's no growth policy to even work toward fruition. And that's what makes me nervous. Well, I only got less than a minute left here, Eric. Why is the U.S. doing better than Canada? Is it all size? Is it they're bigger than us? They've got more of everything. Yeah, I hate to say it because it scares half the population, but size does matter sometimes. And it really does in economics. (laughs) I mean, it's just the difference between being a large open economy and a small open economy. We're really dependent on a lot of things. And where we could have some comparative advantage, like in staples industries or in natural resources or in energy, we seem to not want them. And so we just rely on far more countries than the United States does. And so it means that recessions are deeper and turnarounds are slower. And that, by the way, my friend, is never going to change as long as we are a country of 40 million, they're 400 million, and they're our biggest trading partner. Eric Ham with us, Professor Economics, Toronto Metropolitan University. Again, Eric, as always, thanks so much for your contribution over the course of the year and again for today. Uh, be well and have a great holiday. You know the pleasure's mine. To you and your family, nothing but good health in 2024. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, is the, is are, are uh, uh, let's start with Merry this. Christmas. I wasn't sure what direction. I wasn't sure what direction I was going to go. I was going to ask <laughs> you've you. You've already you've done gone your for shopping. the eggnog, Scott. You've already gone for the eggnog. Yeah, yeah. No, are you kidding me? What time is it? Um, what stands out as you look back on 2023? What and it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be like a political story. It doesn't have to be a sports story. It doesn't. But as you look back, because remember we were coming out of a pandemic, and you know people were, were having epiphanies and, and thinking, mm. okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to. What are you taking from this past year 
and and into next year. What what stands out for you about the um, country, I, life in general? I would say, what am I taking from it? I am taking from it that I cannot, I don't think any of us can get out of 2023 fast enough. I mean, we thought, I think <laughs> that when we came out of COVID, that that was like as bad as yeah. things were going to get. And then yeah. like this year, Scott, and maybe it's because, and I try not to, I mean, I try to avoid social media, but you go on it for just 30 seconds and you feel like you need an out yeah. rubbing alcohol bath. Like it just, yeah. the world yeah. seems like everything is just raging and angry and everyone hates everybody and everyone's mad at this and mad at that. And, and there are I mean, truthfully, I think one of the biggest mistakes that we are making as people, whether it's in the States or Canada or anywhere else, is that we are expecting our politicians to have answers to the problems. They don't Mm. and they can't and they won't. And for us to expect that they are going to solve our problems and then screaming at them when they don't. And in fact, oftentimes they make it worse. I, I think we need to take a hard look in 2024 at what are we really expecting from politicians? And maybe we should tell them, here's a good idea. Just do the basics and leave the other stuff to people who can maybe do a better job at it. Because the politicians, I think in 2023, it, it, and it was a continuation, but showed that they are not capable of solving the world's big problems. They just can't. And I don't know why we keep looking to them to do it. You know, uh, there, that's a very, very interesting point because many people have asked whether the, 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 the current set of politicians have the capacity to do that, let alone the policy. But, uh, you know, to, to play devil's advocate to what you're saying, I, I think that politicians have to do more to listen to the public as opposed to telling them what they think they want to hear in order to get their votes. I mean, you know, we got the pharmacare issue coming up. Only 18% of, of Canadians think that's a priority. They want other health care issues done instead. Um, you know, th- I mean, there's a million examples yeah, of let me things give you that, one, Scott. that are really targeted, that are targeted to niche and not the general middle class population. Let me give you one. What, what do you think is the number one driving issue for most people right now? Affordability. I agree. hundred percent. There was a main street research survey done prior to the last municipal election. So before this term of council was elected, there was a main street research poll done of Hamilton residents asking them, what are your priorities? The number one thing that people said was their biggest priority. The biggest issue in this city was housing. And I think that's not unreasonable. That's a fair thing to be pointing at. Mm -hmm. Number two, and and council to their credit has spent a lot of time talking about it, not really solving anything, but talking about it. Number two on the list, the second most pressing thing that people said was their second biggest issue was reducing taxes. Now they're never going to reduce taxes. That's not how it works. But even holding the line on taxes, how many of our counselors would you say and there are a few, but how many would you say they have listened to the people there, recognize that cost of living and affordability is the driving thing that is affecting most people? How many of our counselors have said, I got to do everything within my power to not spend more money to bring the cost of living down to keep money in people's pockets? There are, a, say, a handful, but I would argue that there's an awful lot of them that look and go, I got a good idea. Let's make more programs and spend more money because we think we can be helpful, but really you're not helping most of the people. They are trying to just stay afloat and we don't need 
14% or even, you know, they're going to come in. It won't be 14% the tax increase when they finally come up with it in March. Yep. It'll be eight or nine. And we're supposed to applaud that. It will, that, that's, that's, it's going to be outrageous, Scott. I, I think that, again, I go back to my point. What was that old line by Ronald Reagan is like the most scary thing to hear is we're politicians and we're here to help. I mean, it's <laughs> get out of the way, do the basic things that need to be done and then get out of the way. And people I think would be thrilled with that. That's how we got into the self-afflicted housing problem. Everybody's standing around going, you know, passing the buck. I hear you. Uh, and I don't envy any of them that have to try to fix this as the problem becomes more complicated uh, every day. Anyway, Scott, thanks very much for all you do and helping us out over the course of the year. Have a great show tonight. Have a great Christmas uh, with you and your family and all the best for the new year. Yes, all the best to the Thompsons. And uh, hey, tell the whole family, stay right except to pass. I will do that. <laughs> And I'm thinking no one's listening. Uh, Thank you, Scott. Oh, good one. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. I'm going to have the last word here. I want to take this opportunity to thank the great people that help us out uh, day in and day out on this show. Uh, And, of course, they all are Will Erskine, who books the show, books the guests, and helps keep it running in a consistent manner. Of course, behind the board, Major Tom McKay, who does an incredible job. Uh, one of the most creative producers I've ever met, makes those great IDs that you hear and such and makes us sound so good, brings it all together. And of course, in the legendary CHML newsroom, uh, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen, who are some of the best of the best and continue to keep the legend alive and that great newsroom just humming and humming and humming. And we greatly appreciate all of that. So thanks to everybody that helps out with Hamilton today. And most importantly, thank you for listening and your dedication and and your support over the course of the last year. Uh, This is the last one for us in 2023. We'll catch you again in 2024. Uh, Till then, please keep right except to pass. (laughs) 